If you have a Bible and you want to go along uh, the text with me, it's going to be John chapter 1, verse 14. What we read for us this morning was the prologue to John's gospel. And um, we're going to look at the end of it, actually, uh, half of it today and half of it next week. Uh, Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we're going to talk about today. The second part, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's actually what the sermon will be about next week. But today, what we're going to meditate on is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eight words, eight words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of language. Somehow you can fit yourself into eight words. Somehow you can fit yourself into our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would throw open the doors of our lives, that we would not be like the innkeepers who had no place for you. But instead, Father, we pray that we welcome you as the Lord of our life, a lover of our souls, and give you the most comfortable chair, the throne of our hearts, that you may rule and reign in our lives, in our homes, and in our communities. We thank you for your word, and that he came amongst us, and that he dwells still with us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, and amen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the crucial conclusion of John's prologue. I find it fascinating because it is the Christmas story in eight English words, and it paraphrases the entire first two chapters of Luke and the first chapter of Matthew. (laughs) And that's John for you. He could do in eight words what it took the other two several chapters (laughs) to accomplish. But who is the word? What is the word? And who cares that that he dwelt among us, really? Where are the presents? Where's the cheesecake? Let's watch the Elf movie, right? These are the things that take up a lot of our time right now. I don't even want to say how many times I've had to watch the Elf movie the last couple of weeks. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things that I've mentioned. But so, uh, as Dean mentioned earlier today with his call, it so often becomes what the season is about, right? And I love the laughter of my little kids when that Elf goes along and he's chewing the gum under the rail on the, on the subway. To watch them watch that is, is a present all in itself. But that's not really what Christmas is about. It's not about the cheesecake. It's not about the presents. The heart of Christmas, the point of all the trees and the lights and the cocoa and the presents and the time off of work is actually a profound mystery that has been revealed by God for our salvation. It's a grand display of the character of God to give mankind hope and peace and joy. In these eight words, there is a lot of mystery a lot of humility, and a lot of glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Christmas story itself is not the gospel, but it's one rail on which the gospel travels to the four corners of the earth. Now, obviously, the other rail is Easter, the two high holidays, Christmas and Easter, the death and resurrection of our Jesus and his coming in the flesh. These are This is the two rails of the gospel. And what I like about Christmas is we can take one portion of the story and and focus a lot on it. But I think it's important to remember, especially that Christmas landed on a Sunday this year, every week we get the holiday where we get to celebrate both parts of the gospel, right? Every week we get to come and rejoice in the coming of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, the death and resurrection of the Lord, and his ruling and reigning over us. We can't forget on these high holidays that every week is a holiday. But the Christmas story, the Christmas story, 
It's the introduction to the gospel, the story of the incarnation, what I like to call the humiliation of the living God. Now, when I say humiliation, I don't mean he's embarrassed. <laughs> what I mean is he humbled himself. Okay? He humbled himself greatly. He humbled himself more than any living being or God or angel or man ever has in the history of the earth. Peter Lightheart wrote this. Christmas celebrates the humility of the God who has become a baby, a boy, a teenager, a man. It commemorates the humility of the God who gave us his own son. He gave him up to the horrifying death of the cross rather than to lose his own people. Christmas is about the humility of a God who offers himself for rebellious sinners who don't want him. Right? Imagine not wanting a single one of the gifts under the tree, but they're yours anyway. That's what Christmas is. It's the gift we didn't really want, but that we so desperately need. The incarnation does not establish salvation in itself, but it's the first step that God takes towards us to effect our ultimate and final rescue. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. To understand Christmas, we must comprehend how far Jesus descends in his incarnation. We have to grasp, grasp the height from which he descended. Okay, John has already told us in verses 1 through 3 that the word who became flesh and dwelt among us was in the beginning with God and was God, and through him all things were made. So the word is eternal. He was already there in the beginning. Something who's already there is not part of the creation that he's participating in. He was with God, or equal to God is another way of saying that. He's with God side by side as they go out to embark on creation. But it also says he was God himself. Only a distinct being can be with God, and yet the word was God simultaneously. It's quite fascinating. There he is in the beginning, with God, and he is God. The word is Jesus' pre-incarnate designation. What I find fascinating is John doesn't refer to him again as the word after the introduction. Okay, we're talking about the word, the pre-incarnate, okay, manifestation of the second being of the Trinity, to put it in super theological terms. In the Old Testament, what comes to men over and over? The word of God came to Moses. The word of God came to Abraham. Okay, The angel tells Joseph and Mary that his name will be Jesus. And so once the word of God comes in the flesh, he's no longer referred to as the word. He's referred to as Jesus. He takes on humanity. He takes on human identity. Right? We know his address. It was... Right? We know where he lived, the year that he lived. He becomes a person. It's fascinating. This mysterious word who's with God and things are made through him becomes a man, Jesus. This is very crucial to understand here. These are very deep waters. And so this part is very confusing. And what I, what I like, though, is St. Paul comes along and actually helps us understand these eight words from John. St. Paul fleshes out this profound and glorious mystery in the book of Philippians, where Paul expounds the meaning of Jesus' incarnation as a crucial element of the gospel. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. We're going to look at a little bit meatier version of these eight words to help us understand them. This word becomes Jesus. Now, Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, count God uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. 
Jesus was in the form of God. Right? Before the world began, the word was with God. Now, form does not mean a mere outward appearance like a wax statue, but the embodiment or true and exact nature possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something. To be in the form of something here, the way this word is used, is to mean to be an exact image and likeness of, the, of it. So if you're with God, right, you're equal to God. You're in the form of God, you're equal to God. This is very important. Having the form of God is equivalent to having equality with God. Jesus is the word who from eternity past has always been God. Paul begins with Jesus before the incarnation, just as St. John does. As Jesus said in 17.5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus didn't come into the world to become the Lord. He came into the world to reveal himself as the Lord he had always been. This sets our context here. Jesus did not enter the story in Matthew chapter 1. He did not earn his status within the Godhead. Okay, Sometimes it's very confusing for us because Jesus came and did a lot. And, and, and it's, he goes from being this nobody to dying and being resurrected and becoming the Lord. And sometimes if we just look at his life on earth, we think he's becoming something that he wasn't already. But it's important to understand he takes the crown off his head and sets it there in heaven and says, just hold on to this, Father, I will be right back. Right? And then he goes and he puts on display for all the world to see who he is, which is the Lord. And, he, and when he goes back into heaven to put the crown back on again, it's not that he's earned something he didn't have before, but he has, he has gained some experience that helps him be the Lord, right? To be the mediator, he learns something while he's here in the flesh that he didn't know before. He adds to his knowledge, but he doesn't add to his lordship. He had that already. He had the crown, and he set it aside and came in the flesh. The incarnation that Paul goes on to describe is even starker when we see the crown Jesus set aside to endure the limitations of humanity. humanity. Philippians 2.6 says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's interesting. A thing to be grasped. There are a number of important things going on here, and I don't believe that they're mutually exclusive. First off, Jesus didn't think that his divinity was something to be clutched greedily. St. Paul is saying that Jesus emptied himself and didn't cling on to his honor or in status as God. Right? It's not as if the God the Father says, okay, son, it's time to set aside your crown and go down there. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? Right? I got the thing already. I'm, gonna get, I'm just going to go ahead and hold on to it. Okay, good luck with that. Tell me how that goes. Right? He doesn't clutch onto it greedy, greedily. He doesn't think his, his position as with God is something to be grasped onto greedily. He doesn't use his divinity as an advantage to avoid his calling as the Messiah. Jesus didn't use his divinity as a means of escaping his earthly ministry or his violent death. He didn't cling to his rights. Right? I, I work in a union shop, and let me tell you, all I ever hear about is her rights. We got our rights. And nobody wants to be, you know, have their dignity in any way, shape, or form lessened by anything that's beneath them. And Jesus wasn't that way. He wasn't. That's what Paul is talking about here. Aspects of Jesus' divinity make his calling impossible. Okay? God the Father says, Jesus, go down there and be the Messiah. He's like, well, hold on. Pops. You can't kill me because I'm God. Right? He doesn't say you can't kill me because I'm God. So 
I'm going to go down there and what do you want me to do? I can't do because I'm God. He, he understands that he has to give up something to be the Messiah from the very beginning, right? You can't kill God unless he lets you. Jesus says himself, he says it, John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Okay, he had to set it aside in order to come in the flesh and be the Messiah that we all needed. He had to, and he was willing to do it. He didn't cling on to it as, and say, no, 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 no. That would be beneath us as the Trinitarian God to do such a thing. Jesus didn't clutch on to and refuse to lay down aspects of his divinity in order to fulfill his calling. Now, the second thing that's going on here, equally important, is an echo from Genesis chapter 3. Now, who else thought that equality with God was something to be grasped, reached out and grasped? The word grasped could also be translated as robbed. Who tried to rob equality with God? Adam did. Satan told Adam and Eve that God was withholding the fruit because he knew it would make man like God. So Adam stood by and watched his wife reach out and grasp the forbidden fruit to attempt equality with God. That was the, the problem in the very beginning. Now, there's Adam in the garden with his wife. Okay, clearly, things they have a great relationship. Things are going well. God is very giving, right? Is it, if you stop and think about it, Adam, do you think God is going to withhold anything from you? No. No. But Satan comes and tempts him to reach out and grasp something earlier than what God the Father wanted him to have. Now, obviously, Jesus is no Adam. Adam wants to be God and is willing to steal it. Jesus is equal to God and doesn't see it as a thing to be grasped onto greedily. He's willing to come and give that glory away to all of you. In his humiliation, Jesus established that he is not like disobedient Adam or any of Adam's children. Jesus values love and sacrifice and submission more than his own position as God. Okay? There are things more important to him than being God. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And he, he can't come and give them to us if he holds on to being God. He's got to set it aside for a time. That is deep, deep, deep mystery there. It's profound. Now, Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 7. Let me go back here. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, servant is better understood to mean, the word, to mean slave which is the word that Paul often used to refer to himself, as he did in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, Bibles translate this word differently. Some people, like the King James says slave, uh, modern translations say servant, some say bond servant, which is a little more confusing. I think people know what a servant and a slave is. Bond servant's a little, a little different. But really what we're talking about is a slave. And we don't like this word because we're Americans, and we have a lot of guilt, as we probably should a little bit, for American slavery. And we think slavery is that. But slavery in the Old Testament is a very different thing. I'm not going to get too into this. It's not American slavery. People who are slaves in the Old Testament are usually that way because of economic circumstances. I would rather live in Cousin Joe's house and serve him than have to go out on the street or go live amongst Gentiles. Right? So what you do is you sell yourself into slavery and you serve a master and he, there's all kinds of rules that dictate how that relationship should be done. 
And, and that's the kind of slavery we're talking about. Right? Jesus is like David, King David. It's better to be, what? A doorman in the house of my Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked or whatever, enjoy pleasures for a thousand years or whatever he says. Something. Right? It's better to be a slave. Jesus knows it's better to be a slave. That's what, that's what men were made to be. Now, here's the connection. The main word in the Old and New Testament for worship both originally refer to the service of slaves or hired servants. Okay? Man was made to worship, therefore he is made to be a slave. That's what he's made to do. You can't be a man and not be a slave. In the Old Testament, they talk about slaves of God, the living God or slaves of Baal. Right? Everyone's got to have a master. You've got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan says. And it's true. Douglas Wilson defines worship as glad service. A servant's focus is always the commands and needs of the master. Man was made to worship, to serve. That's what he's told in the garden. God puts him in the garden and says, serve and keep it. This palace room of the Lord God, which is what the garden was. It's exactly the same thing the high priests were told. Serve and keep it. Because man was made to be a slave. And that's what. And Jesus, right again, at this conference that I like to reference, he's not like, okay, okay, okay. I'll go down there, but I will be a king. That's nice, right? But make sure I'm born, in, born into Herod's house or Caesar's house. I, I like that in um, that horrible movie, The Matrix, when there's one guy who's going to be born again, and he's like, make sure I'm some, something cool, right? Make sure I come back as something awesome, like a, like a movie star. Right? This isn't, Jesus isn't like, okay, who's the wealthiest people who are living? Who are the most famous? Send me to that house. He, no, he'll take it all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this crown off, I'm going to set it here, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a slave. And it doesn't matter if you put me in a house where everyone's a little confused about who's my dad, right? Go ahead and put me in that. What's the ugliest neighborhood down there? Nazareth? Okay, I'll take it, right? None of, none of this stuff is beneath Jesus' dignity. Jesus came as a slave because he came as a man. Men are slaves and they are, because they are worshiping creatures. John 6.38 says, Where I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which is the Father. And he came to be a slave to the Father's will. Jesus, praying to his Father just hours before his death, said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, because he's a faithful, faithful servant. Just like a slave, Jesus did work that was assigned to him and went where he was sent, like a slave, obedient to the end. All right. Now, you see what we're doing here. This is the Hebraic way of defining things. These eight words now, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it's taking on quite a bit of significant meaning. It's not beneath Jesus to come as a man, as a slave to God the Father. There are things to him that are more important than his own deity. But we go on here. Philippians 2.8 says, He was born in the likeness of men. Now, likeness here also means form. It's the same word. Why they don't just translate it that way is an excellent question. I, I don't even, Jared, maybe we'll answer that after the service. But just as he was in the form of God, he came in the form of men. It's very crucial that he does both. Just as being in the form of God made him equal to God in every way, so too coming in the form of man made him equal to man in every way. It is important to understand that Jesus, Jesus didn't leave aspects of his deity in heaven when he entered Mary's womb. He veiled them. He hid them. He didn't give up something necessarily. He put on something. He put on limitations. 
Because all along through the Gospels, you can see just beneath the surface is this God man. Right? He, he acquires a human nature that he doesn't ever let go of. It's quite fascinating. He, he veils his Godhead behind his human nature. Part of his temptation was that he could have used those aspects any time that he wanted to avoid suffering. In his temptation by Satan in Matthew 4, you can see that part of the temptation was that he could have used his deity to produce food out of rocks. I would have done it in a blink of an eye. I don't know what that might have been like for him when he's so hungry. You want me to turn rocks into bread? Done. Right? He's, I mean, think about it. The, the most underappreciated words in the Bible, he was hungry after 40 days of not eating. I bet he was hungry. And he could have he could have turned some rocks into bread. Easy, easy peasy. But he doesn't do it. He veils all of that. With Pontius Pilate as well. He says he could have called down legions of angels that could have wiped out the legions of the Romans in a blink of an eye. But he doesn't do it. Right? It's like holding a ball underwater. You guys ever done that? Trying to hold it under? You can only do it for so long and then it comes blowing up out of the water. But I imagine this is what it must have been like for him. He's going around with this power in his flesh, and it just wants to come out. And you see glimpses of it when he tells the storm to stop, when he performs miracles. He lets a little out at a time just to give people an idea of who he really is. But I can't imagine him trying to hold on to that power all the time. That is a temptation beyond anything I've ever had. Right? I'm, I'm tempted to do things I ought not to get things I want, to be able to literally fulfill any wish at any time, to do anything I want, to have that kind of power all the time and not use it. It's shocking. Shocking. Jesus veiled aspects of his deity to enter human history as a slave to the Father's will. God entered human history in the person of Jesus, laying aside his divinity to suffer among us. Jesus the Lord degraded himself lowered himself to a station of a suckling babe. He subjected himself to going to the bathroom, to illness, to manual labor. Gods don't do this. Gods don't become slaves. Great men don't become slaves. The gods of the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans do not become slaves. They didn't, didn't enter the realm of men unless it was to rape or steal or to lord it over mortals. They don't lower themselves from their dignity. Okay, Buddha and Allah and the pantheistic multitude of Hinduism, no other religion's central message, the one that brings joy and hope and peace to the world, no other religion has at the heart of it the humiliation of their own God. Right? That's why I am thoroughly convinced a man didn't write this story. Because all the stories we write about gods and men that we write are about us becoming gods. Right? Or God's coming down here and we get to kill them. That's why my kids like the Greek, uh, Greek stories. Look, they kill the God. That's funny. Right? Our central message, the one that we put all the lights up for and the tree and the presents, and all, we all get a day off of work, is because God humiliated himself. The incarnation is an atomic bomb to the arrogance and self-importance of mankind. The incarnation of Jesus is an offense to the conceited sensibilities of every 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 human heart. John Calvin said Christ's humility consisted in his abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest humiliation. 
our humility consists in refraining from exalting ourselves by a false estimation. He gave up his right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves more than we ought. <laughs> his humility is what he was willing to set aside. Our humility, we're really considered humble when we don't take on more than we should. It's quite a difference. It's quite a difference. And don't we always assume to ourselves more dignity than we deserve? Right? My, my favorite, I only recently, in the last couple of years, rescinded the executive order that I don't clean toilets. <laughs> I held on to that one way too long. Right? Because it's like I, I get, I, I'm getting married so I don't got to clean toilets. Right? It's this foolish thing I thought, I know, surely I know, I hear you. <laughs> I only recently told my mom about that one. I think she would have wanted to slap me. But all the, all, the, all the grandkids were present. But, I mean, isn't this what we like? I, I, this is, uh, I, I, I see this at work. I see this at home. I see this here. I see it everywhere. Right? We won't do things beneath us. And here we serve a God <laughs> who's going to go so far beneath anything that he, any dignity that he actually has, all the dignity he actually has. It's staggering how far down he goes. Now, why? Why did he... Become flesh. We're going to go back to John chapter 1 now. What was the point of becoming a man? To dwell among us. The word of God did not merely take on flesh, but he dwelt among us. He didn't just have to put on the human suit, and that somehow accomplishes his ends. The word did not come in the flesh merely to die for us either. If you think about it, if it's all about him coming in flesh and dying... Why didn't we just let Herod finish the job? Christ's ministry is a mere weeks. He comes in the flesh. Herod gets jealous and kills him. That seems like a gospel of, of sorts, right? It accomplishes all the necessary things for salvation, isn't, doesn't it? No, I don't know. I don't know. See? See some of you shaking your head. Very good. Very good. You've been paying attention to Dean. <laughs> This is what I find to be fascinating because the Christmas story could have just been a few weeks. St. Athanasius stated it in his book on the Incarnation. Now, this is some really old words, but I'm going to read them because I think he states it very clearly here. For this reason, he did not offer the sacrifice on behalf of all, of all. Immediately he came. For if he had surrendered his body to death and then raised it again at once, he would, he would have ceased to be an object of our senses. Instead of that, he stayed in his body and let himself be seen in it, doing acts and giving signs which showed him to be not only man, but also God the Word. When Jesus took on our flesh, he gained a human body which enabled him to suffer death for us. But he also possessed a human mind and heart. He felt all that we feel, including sorrow and joy, weariness and temptation. Because of this, he is able to sympathize with us and our trials, all of them. Moreover, Jesus lived a human life in the same world in which we live. You can go where he went. Think about that. You can walk where God walked. I have no idea where the Garden of Eden is. God walked in the cool of the day with Adam there. No idea where that is. But I do know where Jerusalem is. Right? And my father has walked. He's been there. He's walked where Jesus walked. It's you, it, it's staggering to think about that. Here's where he walked. Here's where he laid. Here's where he prayed. 
In the incarnation, Christ took on a full, complete human nature, including a physical body, so that he could really represent humanity, right? He's the mediator. And a little baby hasn't experienced all there is to experience in life, right? They think they know everything, and they think they've experienced all kinds of things that they haven't actually experienced, right? If you ask a child what's the worst thing that ever happened to them, it would probably be a broken toy. But Jesus grows up and becomes a man. He understands what it is to long for a woman and not have one, to be hungry and try to make, right, be tempted to make bread out of rocks and not do it. He knows what it is to have a friend stab you in the back, to be maligned. For people who call you, say that you're doing the works of Satan, even though you're doing the works of Father. He, he understands all of that. He goes out and he experiences all of it. In the flesh, God the Son chose to come to earth in the humblest way, defying all expectations. His contemporaries saw him as the son of a poor couple, born in a small, obscure village, and with nothing in his appearance to attract him to himself. In the incarnation, God shows true humility in, in striking manner. He shows that he does not value what the world so often values. Now, one last thing to be said about this. He dwelt among us. Now, there is another word that you could use there instead of dwelt. If you were to translate it more technically accurate, it would be he tabernacled among us. Now, where have we heard that word before? Right? I, I think the King James actually says that. He tabernacled amongst us, which I think is funny. He went camping with us. Right? That's what intent is. He dwelt among us means more literally he pitched his tent, an allusion to God's dwelling among the Israelites in the tabernacle. Now, in the past, this is what happened. Now, God shows the temple in heaven to Moses. Moses makes a copy. That's the tabernacle. Later, now, this is, I don't, he takes David or Solomon, I don't know which, into heaven to see the same temple in heaven and gives, gives him plans to come down and make another copy. And that's where they, they get the idea for the temple. So when you're looking at the temple, you're actually looking at something that a man that men made that is an image of what was made in heaven, that what exists there. Hebrews is very clear about this. What you're participating in in the temple is a copy of what's going on in heaven. Right? And what is the temple? It's where God lives. But it's clouded in mystery. You go there and it's like the tabernacle is like full of it's like covered in seal skins on the outside. It's got all these pomegranates on in there. You got this room nobody can go in. Right, I love that story. They tie a rope around the guy in case he dies while he's in there. You got to drag him out because nobody else can go in there. Right, and and so he tabernacled amongst us. Weird. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's so far beyond what anybody thought because what we're used to is this mystery and this. Right, if you if you touch the ark before it hits the ground, God strikes you dead. And here he comes walking along, and everyone's touching him, and it's healing them. And they want to go where he's, where he is. And he touches bread, and he can make bre one loaf turn into enough food to feed 5,000 people. Right? That glory that we couldn't see, this is getting into next week, now is out there walking amongst us. The glory of the Lord, the thing that Moses longed to see, and what terrified every prophet that came near it in the Old Testament, walked amongst us. It's not about a building anymore. It's about a person, right? In the Old Testament, he puts on the tabernacle. In the, in the Old Testament, he puts on the temple, and that's where he dwells. And if you want to see him, you've got to go there, but not everybody gets to go there. Now he puts on flesh and walks everywhere, and everyone can see him. 
At each stage, God, at each stage, God gets closer to man from the tabernacle to the temple to Christ until God comes himself in the flesh in Jesus and makes his body the holy and everlasting temple. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit because you're now bricks in the new temple. Everyone is waiting for something like the tabernacle, something like the temple. But the tabernacle now is God himself who came in the flesh, who, who is drawing all people to himself and making a temple of the body of Christ. That is so far beyond anything that anyone was expecting. And that is the point of Christmas. This is where we turn the corner now to the conclusion. Leviticus 26.12 says, And I will walk among you and, you and and will be your God, and you shall be my people. This is the promise. He fulfills it. Nobody is expecting it. Nobody accepts it. Nobody wants anything to do with it, and they put him to death. And by so doing, unleash a flood of blessing beyond anything we can, we can possibly imagine. Now, Douglas Wilson, in his book on Christmas, puts it this way. Our God, our overflowing God, our God of yes and amen, has always been able to promise far more than we are able to believe. I am not here speaking of unbelief or of hard hearts, which is another problem altogether. I am speaking here of a true and sincere faith, a God-given faith, but one which is still finite and which God loves to bury under an avalanche of promises. We serve and worship the God who overwhelms, who delights to overwhelm. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, a cascading waterfall of infinite pleasures with no top, no bottom, no back, no front, and no sides, nothing but infinite pleasure in motion, and every one of those pleasures is attached to his promises. And then when he comes to fulfill them, he so ridiculously overwhelms any of our expectations that it's hard to believe. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's not what anyone was expecting. And, and he has come for your life. He's come to give you life and to give you joy and to give you reasons to celebrate. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You don't have to wander around in darkness. You don't have to wander around looking for things to delight in. You don't have to go around drinking more and listening to more music and watching more movies and taking things in. Don't be an innkeeper. There was no room at the end for the Lord Jesus Christ because they were full of all kinds of things. Like C.S. Lewis says, they were playing with mud pies because they couldn't imagine what a holiday to the sea was like. God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you believe that, he dwells among you still. God so loved the world, sorry, <clears throat> God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And if you believe in him, if you believe in him, you shall not perish, but you shall have everlasting life. Now, what did the Son give you? Right? He comes as a present in himself, and he gives more presents. It says, actually, in verse 12 through 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God himself. A new birth, a new life, a new creation. Okay? He's staggering. Staggeringly good. Staggeringly gracious to us. And this is what Christmas is all about. Right? right? This is why the kids laughing at the elf movie is worth it. Right? Because my heart is satisfied and full. And then I can have everything else. What's funny is when I try to have everything else and not him, I have nothing. And that is, that's what the world is suffering from. And so the Christmas story is this. Darkness covered the earth. And the word came and filled it with beautiful presence. Under the tree of the cross is the, is the incarnation. And the incarnation leads on to other gifts, to the Father himself, to God himself dwelling with us forever. And, and for those who believe. Okay? Don't leave these particular gifts unwrapped under the tree because you're off watching the elf movie. Or because you're eating cheesecake. Open these presents. Open them. Share them. Right? Regift these as much as you want. Because it's glorious and it's, it's better to give than to receive. These things that we have received should fill our hearts with the kind of joy and contentment that wants to regift it as much as possible. So go today. This is your calling as Christians. This is your calling because God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you believe it, He dwells with you to this day. Now, now go therefore and rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh and dwelt among us. We pray, Father, that these things are difficult to uh, comprehend. The maker of heaven and earth became a man. Father, we need this to be true. We need it. We need this light in our lives on Mondays and Tuesdays, in the winter and in the spring and in the summer. We need this. And please, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to accept this glorious and good news. We pray, Father, that as we go about celebrating today, that you would be in the midst of it. You delight in in the things that you give us if you're in the midst of them. The manger was beautiful because Christ laid in it. And I pray, Father, that you would indeed be in our midst today, at our tables and around our trees, in our songs and in our drinks, I pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with light and love and joy and that you would teach us what it means to truly rejoice. For we are the most blessed of people. For our God understands in a visceral way what it is to be a man. And he has saved us out of darkness. And he dwells among us. And amen.